When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Sometimes it's the normal, sometimes it's the abnormal, sometimes it's the paranormal, but it's always Beyond Reality Radio. Or it's just Beyond Reality, and this is Beyond Reality Radio. Anyway, welcome to the program. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here. Tripping over my tongue a little bit tonight for some reason. Not sure why, but we have a great program, as we always do. We have two guests on with us tonight. First hour of the program will feature Pam Grossman. And Pam is a writer and a curator and a teacher of magical practice and history. We'll be talking about modern witchcraft. And then in the second Hour of the show, Reverend Sean Whittington will be our guest. Sean is an ordained exorcist, and he'll talk about his experiences with ghosts, demons, and the paranormal. So a lot of great stuff coming up in just one show. Two hours of great interviews and discussions, plus your phone calls at 844-687-7669. We'll take those um, toward, uh, well, we'll, we'll just leave the phone lines open tonight because, you know, with two guests, it gets a little weird just to take them in the second hour. So the phone lines will be open if you have a question or a comment. The um, rest of the week, obviously Friday is a best of show, and then we look ahead to Monday. We've got Lisa Mort- Morton coming on. Lisa is an author and a screenwriter. She's going to be talking about the history of ghosts from ancient Samaria to today, and she'll examine related entities such as poltergeists and wraiths. And then Tuesday, what has become a bit of a Halloween, uh, Halloween right? holiday tradition Jeff Belanger, our good friend, will be with us to talk about Christmas legend and lore with tales like the tale of the Krampus. The I think the Bell Snickle was one of them. I, there were there's like a half a dozen or more of these very very odd um, legends that are actually still observed in their native countries. We just don't hear a whole lot about them. Well, we will Tuesday night with Jeff Belanger, and then another returning guest on Wednesday. This is another exciting one, Cindy McGill. You remember Cindy? Cindy is a master dream interpreter, and she'll be talking about what your dreams are telling you. You'll be able to call in, tell her what you've been dreaming, and she'll be able to tell you what it means. Always, always a great show with Cindy McGill. So a lot of good stuff coming up. Before we go to break and get ready to bring our first guest into the program, I want you to go to YouTube, and I want you to subscribe to our channel. It's very easy to find when you get to YouTube. Just search for J.V. Johnson. Beyond Reality Radio will probably get you there, too. But the channel is called J.V. Johnson's Beyond Paranormal. And we stream the show live there. So if you don't have a radio station carrying the program or you're on the go and you're moving from place to place and you can uh, you know, use your phone when you're being mobile, uh, then YouTube is a great way to, to listen to the program because this, the show is live there. There's a great chat room. Plus, there's an archive of, of about, I don't know, 450 or so back episodes. A lot of great stuff. Bonus content as well. So go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson. When you find the channel, please subscribe. Our numbers are growing there. Our community is growing there. We're excited to see so many people participating with us on YouTube. All right, um, let's go to break. When we come back, we'll bring our first guest of the evening. Again, 
First hour is Pam Grossman. We'll be talking about witchcraft. And in the second hour of the show, Reverend Sean Whittington, and we'll be talking about exorcisms. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Hey, gang, it's JV here. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Beyond Reality Radio. Some of you are new to the program. And some of you have been with us for years. And no matter if you're interested in ghosts, the UFO phenomenon, conspiracy discussions, or any of the other topics we explore on this program, we do it for you. Our goal here is to help find answers to some of the world's most enduring mysteries. And as we continue to bring you interviews and discussions each night, it's important that we get your feedback and even more importantly, your support. The media landscape is forever changing. And as it does, we need to be able to change with it. That's why it's important for you right now to go to our youtube channel and subscribe once on youtube just search for jv johnson you'll find it there subscribe it's all free and it'll make you part of our global community in addition beyond reality radio is available as a podcast go to your favorite podcast platform and search for beyond reality radio and subscribe there as well And finally, we have an archive program that you may enjoy as well. This show can be found on major podcast platforms, and it's called Beyond Reality Paranormal. By supporting us in one or all of those places, you can be sure we'll be able to continue to deliver quality shows to you, no matter what form the media landscape takes. As a paranormal historian, I promise you the best and most entertaining conversations as we continue to hunt for the truth. Our first guest of the evening is Pam Grossman. Pam's a writer, a curator, and a teacher of magical practice and history. We're going to be talking about modern witchcraft. Her website is just her name, pamgrossman.com. She's also the host of a podcast, which is called Witch Wave Podcast. The website for that is exactly the name, witchwavepodcast.com. And she's written a book called Waking the Witch. Pam, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here tonight. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, Not everybody wakes up as a witch or practicing witchcraft. Some point along the way, you discovered this. Tell us how it happened. Absolutely. So I often say that I don't have an amazing superhero origin story about becoming a witch. (laughs) It is just something that I always intuitively gravitated towards as as I was a child. And, you know, I think a lot of kids are very intuitive and very magical. We have such vast imaginations, and I think we operate on all of these different kind of levels of consciousness that then we're socialized out of. Um, So anyhow, I don't think I was so much different than the usual kid who gravitates towards magic and stories about mythology and unicorns and mermaids and Medusa and all of that good stuff. And I just had these really wonderful kind of bohemian parents who really encouraged that side of me. So as I got older and I was a teenager... I was still interested in magic, and I was coming of age, I was born in the 80s and was a teenager in the 90s, and that was a time of this real explosion of witchcraft, mass market paperbacks, there were a lot of witch movies and TV shows and pop culture, so it was actually pretty easy for me to access spell books and new age stores and the occult section of the library. And so I started doing spells, and to my delight and sometimes terror, the spells worked. (laughs) And so things just kind of evolved from there. 
When you um, started to become familiar with this whole concept and started to gravitate toward it, did you, I'm a little confused with your answer to my first question, so I'm looking for some clarification here. Was it the magic part of it that attracted you, or was it more of a spirituality component or both? I'm glad you're asking me that because when it comes to talking about witchcraft, it's often really difficult to parse it because so many of us who identify as witches identify for different reasons. In my case, it's everything. It's all of the above. I was a spiritual seeker. I was raised Jewish, but I was always attracted to these different um, systems of spirituality, you know, across various cultures. But paganism, um, which is, you know, the kind of belief that all of nature is divine and that there is spirit in everything, was absolutely something I gravitated towards. But on the same token, I was also really into doing spells, you know, the real practice of witchcraft. Um, So both of those things were true in my case, but certainly, you know, some people who are pagan don't necessarily do spells, and some people who do spells don't necessarily call themselves pagan. So I'm glad you had me clarify that for you. What does it mean when someone uses the word witch? Because I think, you know, we've we've often had uh, folks on who say, oh, witches are misunderstood. But then, it, then other people will say, well, the definition of being a witch has changed over the centuries, really. Um, to you, what does it mean to be a witch? And is it the same definition that it was, say, you know, 400 years ago? Oh, it is definitely not the same as one believed witches to be 400 years ago, uh, 400-plus years ago, really, um, because the word witch throughout history has almost always been associated with something negative. It was, you know, either a dark, evil magic um, with, with Christianity and the witch hunts that really exploded in the 15th through 17th centuries of Europe, um, you know, there was an association of witches with the devil and worshiping the devil and, you know, curdling milk and killing babies and all of this horrific stuff. Um, so, so certainly the word witch had this very negative, dark connotation, and there was a real differential between a witch and a more positive magic maker, such as you know, a healer, a seer, a fortune teller, a shaman, um, a kind of folk magician. But over the years, and this is really what my book is about, um, especially starting in the 19th century with the first wave of feminism, people started reclaiming the word witch as a more positive moniker. And it was in response to this notion that women with power were considered threatening. And so why not reclaim that powerful word as positive? But you can't really decouple the word witch from its history, even as people like myself and many of my friends and colleagues, you know, see ourselves as this really positive force in the world. I think we have to recognize that when, you know, the term, from what I understand, and and you're the expert, I certainly am not, um, but when the word witch was initially used, um, it was was defined as um, 
a person, I assume a woman, I don't know if it was exclusively female, um, who was in league with the devil. And that was the definition that the church gave to that word. Um, and I, you know, misunderstood or not, that's what they said. And I think over time, we've obviously dispelled those notions. And now the, the word has taken on a completely, well, for most people, a completely new meaning and a new um, concept, which, uh, you know, I, I guess we have to applaud that for sure, because the old ways, obviously not very enlightened. Exactly. It wasn't enlightened, and more than that, it was very misogynistic. So um, certainly there have always been people of all genders who were considered some kind of witch or magical person. But let's be clear, between an estimated 75 to 85 percent of people killed in the name of witchcraft during the witch hunts were women. Right. And so it was absolutely, um, you know, baked into that cake, this sexism, this fear of female sexuality, of female deviancy, of female power, female ambition, all of those things for sure. Why do witches, whether it's in film or books or anything, uh, we look all through pop culture, they seem seem to be making appearances everywhere in one form or another and very, very popular. Is there something changing in pop culture that's welcoming that or encouraging that? Or um, is it just witches' time to shine in pop culture? Yeah, I think it's happening for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, witches, as I said, since the 19th century, have been reclaimed and reframed as these feminist icons. They're these rebels. They are anti-patriarchal. They're often outsiders. They do have this power, and, and it's power on their own terms, not in relation to anybody else. And so I think with this you know, fourth wave of feminism that we're in and this real longing that people have to ingest stories about powerful, badass women, witches are a wonderful go-to archetype for storytelling. So I, I certainly think that's a piece of it. But I also think that it's reflecting a real resurgence in the actual practice of witchcraft. Um, you know, people have been practicing some form of modern witchcraft, uh, certainly since the mid-20th century when Wicca came on the scene, and we've seen many different iterations of that, and more and more people who are gravitating towards alternative spiritual systems and ones that, again, are anti-patriarchal, that honor intuition, that celebrate nature and the body. And so I think pop culture is often a reflection of what's happening in the real world. In addition to that, it seems that more and more people are identifying as witches. Um, what's what's at play there? Are, are, are people finding a, a path that has eluded others for so long, and now they found found a, a home, if you will? I think that's part of it. And again, this is where the word witch is so slippery, and it's such a shape-shifting word, um, like the figure it describes. And so there are many people like myself who identify as witches for spiritual reasons. You know, we say it to signify that we have this um, alternative spiritual practice that is subversive um, and that is, 
you know, about fighting for the oppressed and representing the most marginalized people amongst us. Um, it's a spiritual path that often centers and celebrates the feminine, unlike so many of our most popular religions and also government systems and, you know, certainly our economic systems. So I think that's a big piece of it is, is this spiritual identifier. But on the same token, you also have people who are calling themselves witch in a political tongue-in-cheek kind of way. So they might not actually be witchcraft practitioners in the sense of, you know, casting spells or paying attention to the cycles of the moon or, you know, celebrating the pagan holy days. Um, but they still call themselves witches in the same way someone might have called themselves a nasty woman, you know, a couple years ago um, as a way of reclaiming this word that used to be this negative epithet to keep women down, to silence them, to shame them, um, and to reclaim this word as a word of power. But you had said that uh, your for- first experience with uh, spellcasting came from a spellbook. Uh, is that how most people are introduced to these ideas, or you know, to the to, to the uh, you know, maybe the uh, process by which they can do this? Well, today I think it's mostly the internet. I mean, if you look at spaces like Instagram and Tumblr, the witchcraft community is thriving. So I think that's often the gateway for a lot of people who are just getting into witchcraft now. But absolutely, books and finding, you know, the right spell that you come across in a library or in a book a friend loans you or a book that you pick up at a bookshop is absolutely a way that a lot of us start experimenting. And you said that uh, to your amazement or your surprise, I'm not sure exactly which word you used, uh, they started, some of them started to work. Um, Is that true? You actually were starting to cast these spells and they were just starting to work for you. Absolutely. And I often say that witches are realists. We're very pragmatic and results-oriented, and we wouldn't bother doing this stuff if if it didn't work on some level. Um, So we can absolutely unpack that because there's a lot to say about it. But for sure, I mean, if it didn't work, I wouldn't have bothered continuing down this path. Pam, when you started to actually cast spells, I mean, they must have been, I would would think, rather simple in the beginning. But uh, what are the processes involved, and what types of things were you trying to accomplish? Sure. So like most teen witches, I was trying to get boys that I liked to like me back. I was trying to pass, you know, the math test or trying to help my other friends kiss boys that they liked. I mean, it's, you know, what what the concerns of teenagers often are. Um, for From my experience, it was really interesting, and it was a real exercise in improvisation because I would get these spell books, but because I was, you know, 13 years old, I didn't have access to a car. I didn't have my own money, really. And so they would often ask for ingredients that I just didn't have access to. So I would have to kind of replace things in, you know, based on whatever I could find in my house. Um, So let's say it asked for, I don't know, brown sugar or fresh ground cinnamon Um, in New Jersey in the 80s and 90s. The best I could do in my mom's kitchen was sweet and low packets, you know, so I would use that. And what that taught me was that so much of magic is about symbolism and uh, what we call sympathetic magic. It's about using items that just 
feel correct from a metaphorical or symbolic or even energetic standpoint. Um, so absolutely, I was trying to follow the spell books in terms of their recipes. But just like when you're learning how to cook, you know, you, you try to follow the recipes, but then you don't become a chef until you learn the rules and then you start making up your own recipes, right? And so it was the same for me with witchcraft, um, where I would follow the recipes or the spells as best I could, but because I had to improvise, it taught me that I could be imaginative and I could use ingredients or switch out words or write my own words that would be equally as effective. How often do you find yourself um, in a position where you want to cast a spell? I mean, do you do this every day? I don't anymore. I mean, I'm I'm an adult now. I'm in my 30s. I've lived a lot of life. And so I've actually come around um, to realize that so often the things we think we want are not actually what is best for us. So my spells these days are often about you know, trying to be more aligned with my higher purpose, trying to be a source of love, trying to be more forgiving, trying to be more brave, more creative, more kind, as opposed to, I hope I get this specific job, or I hope I, you know, get enough money to get that car. Um, Because, you know, we don't always know what is best for us. And, And so I trust spirit with a capital S, to know better than I do. But absolutely, you know, there are occasions where I will do a more specific spell. Um, often it's to help friends, whether it's to bless their pregnancy or to do a wedding ritual or, you know, sometimes people come to me for love spells and I actually do self-love spells because I don't believe anymore in doing spells that Um, control the outcomes of other people's lives. I think we can only really do magic on ourselves ultimately. And so, um, yeah, those are the kind of things that I'm doing more of. A a lot of my time these days is spent doing rituals and celebrations and giving thanks and, um, you know, asking for help. But it's, it's a little bit more broad focused, if that makes sense. Do witches, including yourself, still uh, belong to covens? And if so, is that a source of power? We do indeed, not all of us. I would say the majority of people are still what we call solitary witches. They're people who practice by themselves or in the privacy of their own homes. Um, And some of that is just because no matter how popular witchcraft might seem to be right now, it's still not very many of us, you know, relative to the global population. I mean, I think it's more than people might assume, but, um, you know, I think most people don't live in New York City like I do um, and can find other kindred spirits all the time. And some people just prefer to practice as individuals, you know, in the privacy of their own homes and lives, and that's completely valid. But absolutely, there are covens. I am a member of a coven myself, and I can tell you it has been such a source of power and nourishment because you are getting support from people who are bearing witness to your vulnerability, who are supporting your emotional life, as well as, you know, conjuring all kinds of 
spirit and magic together. It's, it's one of the most powerful things that I participate in. When you cast a spell, regardless of what the spell is, and you get the outcome you're looking for, where does the power of that spell come from? Where does the energy to actually affect the world around you to make whatever it was you were asking for happen, happen? Where does that come from? Oh, I wish I knew. And anybody who tells you they know is lying (laughs) or um, I think is probably, I don't know, guessing at best. None of us really know. Um, For me, I know how it feels. I believe it comes from the divine source. You know, I call it capital S spirit. You know, it's a creative, generative force that gives life to everything. And um, so for me, it helps me to focus on that capital S spirit via certain deities and certain stories. So if you were to come to my apartment and look at my altar, you would see figures of certain gods and goddesses that I have a relationship with. But, you know, a lot of people have asked me over the years, like, do I actually believe in, let's say, Artemis, the goddess of the moon in Greek mythology, who I have a very close relationship with? And the answer is, I do believe in Artemis, and I do have a lot of devotional you know, work that I do towards her and for her. And she has helped me very much in my life in ways that have been deeply profound. But is she, quote unquote, real? Or is she just, you know, an imaginative figure that it's easier for me to project the divine onto? Like, I I just don't have an answer for that. I just know that the connection is real and meaningful for me. We have a a great question from our chat room, and it's uh, basically from Mary Grace. She wants to know what the difference is in your mind between a spell and a prayer. Oh, well, there's this great thing that witches say a lot, which is a spell is a prayer with props. And I've (laughs) always loved that because they're not different insofar as in both cases, you are using the power of your intention and your emotion. Um, you're feeling it in your body, and you are using your imagination and your vision and your heart to communicate something, whether it is asking for help or giving thanks for something um, or trying to manifest some kind of change in your life. With spells, there's a lot more... Um, activity. There's often, you know, certain gestures we're using, certain language, certain, you know, props. And I say that with a wink, you know, they're, they're beautiful, sacred objects. So it's a very um, sensual kind of way of being because you are, you are aware of your body and you're moving in the material world. Whereas a prayer, I think of as a little bit more disembodied. It's something that you can just sit and close your eyes and, you know, visualize in your head or say out loud. Um, So I think of spells as just a little bit more complicated prayers. Can can anyone do this? If, if, If you're interested in this and you find a book and you start to learn about it, can anyone begin the art of spell casting or witchcraft? This is debatable. In my opinion, yes, anyone can do it. But like anything else, there are some people who have 
an aptitude for it, some people who it comes a little more easily to, um, and it takes practice. You know, even for those of us who it might come naturally to, it is a skill and something that you have to learn the parameters of. And, you know, we all, even though we might learn similar guidelines or or rules, um, we all end up personalizing it and doing it in our own way. And I think the personalization is what actually adds to a spell's efficacy. You know, 10 people can be reading the same spell and using the same ingredients, and everyone is still going to add their own energy to it, their own flavor to it. And I think the more we stylize, the more we infuse our magic with you know, objects that are really personal to us or language that feels more resonant than something that we're just kind of reciting out of a book, the more powerful our spells become. So it's really creative and really artful. If someone is new to this and they get a book of spells and they try to uh, cast one or more, uh, is there any danger to them of doing something that may harm themselves other than maybe doing something silly with fire physically? That's a good clarification because there's a lot of fire involved in spell work. We we use a lot of candles. Um, So, yes, be be careful with that. You know, I I never want to say never because it it depends often, I think, on the mental wellness of a person. Um, Spell casting and magic cannot replace therapy. It cannot replace medicine. It can't replace actually taking steps in the physical world that you might need to take in order to make yourself safer or more or more healthy. Um, so it's really important that people hear that. You can't just cast a spell and it will fix everything that is, you know, a source of negativity in your life. Um, so, you know, like anything, there, it's not for everybody. Um, I would say you need to be a pretty stable person in order to, to do this kind of work. But I do not believe, for example, that if you get a word wrong or you don't do it exactly right, uh-oh, you're going to, you know, have some horrible disaster happen. I think people get really scared um, when they're watching movies and seeing people make magical mistakes and then these horrible outcomes happen. In my experience, that's just not true. Um, I do caution people very firmly against trying to do magic that manipulates or controls other people. I don't think that's healthy behavior to do in our interpersonal lives in general. And I I also don't believe in that. I don't believe in, you know, non-consensual magic, we can call it. Um, So that's something that I would be really careful about. But generally speaking, if you have good intentions and you're coming to magic from a stable and healthy place, I don't believe that you're going to cause any harm to yourself. Pam, you've got a book as well, called Waking the Witch. Tell us about the book. Sure. The subtitle of the book is Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power. And I bring that up because that was really the orientation that I wanted to take when I was writing about witches. Um, You know, there's so many wonderful how-to books out there, but I wanted to really write about the witch as a figure and as a symbol and specifically trace how she went from this villainous, perhaps even 
diabolical figure to becoming this feminist icon, uh, because I think the the way that we feel about our witches is often the way that we feel about women. And so it's no surprise that now that there are more women who have a voice, who have more power in society, who are being valued more, not enough in my opinion, but more than perhaps we used to be, that the figure of the witch is getting valued more. And that gives me a lot of hope. You know, no matter how the definition changes or the the idea evolves, um, you know, we've got Hollywood to contend with and we've got television to contend with. And, uh, you know, you've got things like the Blair Witch Project and you've got other pop culture entries that portray witches very differently than what you're saying here. Does that bother you? You know, it really doesn't. I find the whole spectrum of witches really interesting. And so those negative depictions, I think, have a lot to teach us about our fear of women and our fear of feminine power. Um, And that's what I often say about the witch in general, that our witches reflect both our fears and our fantasies about feminine power. And so, you know, if there is a witch and she's being shown as like a scary, old, ugly hag, well, that has a lot to tell us about our fear of aging women and how we devalue them or how we're, you know, completely threatened by older women who might be more wise, but perhaps don't have that um, sex appeal that they used to have. Or, you know, if there is a witch that is young and sexy and seductive, um, but then, you know, is also a murderess. I think that shows us something about our fear of female sexuality. And so as long as we're happy to deconstruct why these witches are there, I think they have use to us. And plus, they make for really good stories, let's be honest. We talked about the fact that um, more and more people are gravitating toward these ideas and identifying as witches. Is that happening just, you know, in our backyard, the United States, or is it happening globally? You know, it's happening in certain pockets across the globe. Certainly, you know, we're seeing it in parts of Europe, for sure. Um, You know, I hear from people across the world, often in more progressive cities or, you know, people who are in dialogue with some of the conversations um, that, that I'm part of. But let's be clear, there are still parts of the world that to be called a witch is a death sentence. There are literal witch hunts happening in places like Papua New Guinea and India and Saudi Arabia and sub-Saharan Africa and parts of South America. Um, So certainly there are communities that do not view witches as positive. Um, They have a real belief that witches are still, you know, scary, frightening uh, beings, and there are still people who are dying in the name of witchcraft. So I realize that I have a lot of privilege. You know, I'm a woman who lives in New York City, a very progressive (laughs) community. Um, And so while it's never entirely safe to identify as a witch, and there are still people who might misunderstand me or, um, you know, have misconceptions about me, it's not the same as somebody who is being accused of being a witch and whose life is, is threatened because of that, as is happening in other parts of the world. Do you teach other people, Pam, how to either practice witchcraft or how to be a witch? 
You know, I did in the past. I used to teach workshops um, around different forms of spell crafting. So sometimes the theme would be around a certain phase of the moon or around a certain element, such as fire or earth or water or air. Um, Sometimes it would be in relation to one of the pagan holy days, um, such as, you know, Yule or Samhain or um, the summer solstice. But These days, I've actually moved away from it. Um, Some of that is because just I found that I'm so interested in the history of the witch and the witch as a symbol and really unpacking that. Um, But more than that, I've come to realize, too, that, you know, I can certainly try to teach people spellcraft and so on. But it really is so personal, and if there's any permission slip I can give people, it's to say that there's no one way to do magic. And um, as I said, you know, in the earlier half of the show, I think the more personal you make your magic, the more effective it is. So I may get back to teaching those kind of workshops in the future, but for now, not so much. We're going to have to get to our other guest here in just a couple minutes, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us about the podcast as well. Yes, my podcast is called The Witch Wave, and every episode I feature a guest who either identifies as a witch or whose work revolves around witchcraft or magic, and it's a really diverse body of guests. Um, both from their lived experiences, so people of all genders and sexualities and backgrounds and so on, um, but also the different ways in which people identify as witches. So some people are, you know, literal witches of the kind you might be picturing, but then I have drag queens and um, tattoo artists and authors of fiction who see the way that they write as a form of magic. So I'm very interested in the spaces where creativity and magic overlap and where they might even be one and the same. Your book is called Waking the Witch. I'm assuming that people can get it in the normal sources. Where can people find it? They can find it everywhere. <laughs> and, um, you know, please, please do track it down. I I feel like some people might assume that it's only for people who are interested in witches or making magic, but I think it's actually a book that is about culture and the ways in which the symbols that we use evolve over time and tell us about the ways that we've evolved as humans. So I hope you enjoy it. I have one last request for you. I know you said two things that uh, kind of fly in the face of what I'm going to ask. One is that you're not casting a lot of spells anymore, and, and the second one is that you don't cast them on other people. But I'm going to ask that you cast a spell that helps me fit into my pants because I'm telling you right now, I've been trying everything to lose a few pounds. It's not happening. Maybe witchcraft will work. Oh, my goodness. Well, what I would suggest for you in in all sincerity (laughs) is to focus on casting a spell for you to just be healthy in whatever way that means and feel good. I think when we focus too much on, you know, the actual result. It, it kind of uh, deters us, so I, I will help cast a spell for you to feel good. <laughs> Thank you very much. I said it a bit <laughs> tongue-in-cheek, but I, I really do have to start exercising a little bit more. Anyway, hey, Pam, thank you so much for being with me tonight. It was a great conversation. You, uh, you're, you're, you're very um, well-versed in, in the subject matter, and I appreciate your time. 
Again, thank you to Pam Grossman. What's wrong with asking for a spell? If it would take nothing but a spell for me to lose 10, 15 pounds, why not, right? If it's that easy, sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do that any day of the week. Um, in the second part of our show, our second guest, Reverend Sean Whittington, is with us. He's an ordained exorcist, and we'll be talking about his experiences with ghosts, demons, and the paranormal. His website is ghost-b, the letter B, dash gone, dot biz. He also has a book called God, Ghosts, and the Paranormal Ministry. And, uh, Sean, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Great to have you here. JB, it's an honor. How are you, sir? I'm doing very, very well. How are you doing? Well, you know what? I've been waiting for this for a long time. I, I just turned 60. I've been wanting to retire early, and I already told the wife it's never going to get better for me than being on Beyond Reality Radio with J.B. Johnson. Oh, well, that's... so I'm retiring <laughs> after we're done. Well, that's very, very kind of you. I hope I hope that's not true, though. Sounds like you're doing a lot of great, <laughs> great work and have a lot more to do. How long have you been doing this, by the way? Well, I've been seeing spirit since I was a very young kid, and. Uh, Oh, my gosh. I probably got introduced to my first case, if you will. I didn't know it was a case at the time, but um, introduced to my first up-close-and-personal uh, confrontation with a spirit at the age of 10. The rest is history. I've just been very passionate about paranormal investigations and ghost-busting all my life. But I didn't uh, get on the path to become ordained and start working the much darker cases till I met my wife, uh, and we got married 17 years ago. And she's a sensitive, intuitive, and also a Stephen minister to the Lutheran faith. So we had some things happen to us which put me on that path, and here I am. So tell us about this uh, this encounter you had. You said it was up close and personal at 10 years old. That's not an age that you handle. You can necessarily handle that stuff very easily. What happened? No, it freaked me out, to be honest with you, because I had been seeing spirit many years before that. The only person I could confide in was my mother, and uh, I, I found out many, many years later that my older sisters and my mother were both very sensitive to spirit. But she told me that I was going to see a lot of spirit in my life and not to be afraid of them, that they were just people that didn't have a body any longer. And if um, you see one, ask it what it wants of you. If it's a message it needs to give you or if there's something you need to do to help it, fine. But if there's nothing you can do for it, be honest with it. Tell it that you can't help it. Remind it that it's dead and that it needs to move on to the light or move on someplace else and to please stop bothering you. But they had me spend the night. My sister's one's eight years older than me, one's ten years older than me. They were in college at the time, and they were living in a haunted home, renting a haunted home out with some other uh, students, and they didn't tell me that there was a ghost in the house, and I went over there to spend the night because my parents went out, so they were babysitting me. And I saw the spirit that night, and the following day, she communicated with me, and I talked her into looking for her angels and looking for the lighting crossing over. And so uh, I-, I felt that was my calling even then. So you're saying that your that encounter that you're talking about was actually one where you helped helped guide a spirit uh, to cross over? Absolutely, I was uh-huh. already I was baptized Catholic mm-hmm. and confirmed also under the Catholic religion. So I knew a lot about angels and and the light and going to heaven. And I just felt that that's what she needed to be told to do. That she wasn't stuck. 
there was nothing for her to fear on the other side, and to look for her angels and ask for her angels to guide her to heaven, guide her to the light. And uh, wow. and that's exactly what happened. Now I think la- so, as you uh, as you learned more about this and you developed more skills, if you will, um, you might look back on what your mother said, which was that they're only um, you know people without a body or whatever the phrase was. Uh, when you start talking about demonic and negative en- entities, you're probably talking about something far different than what your mother was thinking of. Absolutely, and I think she. She obviously knew that, too, but at a young age, she probably didn't want to freak me out right. any more than I was already freaked out, so she didn't really delve too much into that. But I remember very as being even a, a little kid, you know, in the afternoons, uh, you're bouncing off the walls, and Mom's pretty much had it and needs a little break and wants uh, some nap time. And I remember her telling me when we would take naps to just grab a big handful of her hair and she would grab a hold of my leg real tight, and she would make sure that nothing took me from her while we were sleeping. And it wasn't until many years later that I started thinking maybe that's exactly uh, what she was uh, trying to prevent from happening, something worse um, coming after me than just a a ghost. But she didn't want to articulate that to me at the time and, and have my mind just explode. But I look yeah. back on that, and I think perhaps that's what she meant by that. So do you see all of this, all these things we're talking about, ghosts, uh, possession, demonic entities, negative entities, do you see all of this in terms of what we've learned them to be uh, through uh, Christianity or the Catholic faith or the Bible even? To be honest with you, I found it to be a lot worse. I found that the, the demons... Dealing with demonic cases is, is much different than uh, your typical aunt or Aunt Betty or Uncle, Uncle Tom or, you know, watching over the home and the family, and they had so much of a hold on life. They're not ready to cross over, but they know they're dead. Uh, demonic cases, it's a matter of life and death. And the hatred, the level of hatred uh, that these things have for us is... Um, is off the charts. I could never um, adequately put into words the uh, severity um, of that hatred. And so I've found that encountering them and what they're all about to be far worse than anything that I was ever told yeah, but, but I guess my question is that, you know, if we try to understand what they are, not, not necessarily how bad they are, how they affect us, but what they are, are they what, um, in, in your interpretation of this, are they what uh, we're told they are by the Christian faith or the Bible? Are th- is that what these things are? I believe so. You do? In okay. my heart of hearts, yeah. I believe they're fallen angels, okay. and they work for um, the devil. Right. So, um, you know, you started by having encounters with uh, spirits, and you actually helped one at a very, very early age. At what point did you have your first encounter with something negative, a a demonic entity, or just a negative spirit? My wife and I, we had not encountered anything really dark or malevolent. We started Ghost Be Gone right after we got married, because we both knew we had a passion for investigating the paranormal. So we started ghostbegone.biz and started working cases. And unfortunately, the first extremely malevolent case that we came across, I didn't recognize the signs. 
And so I was very stupid and ignorant to how to properly use a Ouija board or if they should even be used. I don't use them or touch them anymore, but we used a Ouija board on this case and did a seance. And I believe now that something that we allowed something to come through and attach mm-hmm. to us, mm-hmm. and it followed us home that night and took up residence in our home for about eight weeks. And the if I could do it all over again, I probably wouldn't because I almost lost my wife because of it. Oh, she wow. was the one that was the target of the attack. Was the and attack physical? With, was it physical, mental, emotional, everything? It was physical. Well, everything, wow. but yeah. mostly physical. It left her with three very rare forms of cancer. And she didn't drink, didn't smoke. The healthiest person I knew. No history of cancer in her family. And right after we got this thing out of the home, uh, her attack, or what was left over of the attack, came on like gangbusters in a matter of just a few days. She developed a very rare form of tongue cancer, throat cancer, medullary thyroid cancer, which spread through lymph nodes all through her neck, and she was expected to die. She had a feeding tube in for over a year, Um, and, uh, yeah, she wasn't expected to live, so I did a lot of crawling on my hands and knees to an all-night prayer chapel many nights uh, while she was basically literally dying at home and uh, begged for God to save her life, spare her life, and if he did that, then I would continue to uh, do what I'm doing, which is uh, finish my course. I was trained at the time. I would finish my course, become ordained, and continue that battle. You clearly uh, made a promise there that you had to fulfill. However, that experience must have made you very hesitant to mess with this stuff anymore, and certainly made your wife very hesitant to mess with it. Well, she's very uh, devoutly religious in her Lutheran faith, and she's very stubborn, and she's very brave, probably far braver than I am. So, you know, surprisingly enough, no. Five years later, um, you know, after, uh, you know, the cancer doctors and the radiation and the chemo and all that, yes, that did save her life, but I believe that she's still here because of extreme divine intervention. And that's what she believes also. She won't allow me to work a case by myself because that's very dangerous. And so she's right there on the front lines with me, um, ready to continue the battle also. But they're gangsters, and they go after what you love most. And so, yes, when we're preparing for a case or we arrive at a location, they're always right in my ear telling me what they're going to do to her if we don't back off, leave the client alone, leave the location. And uh, so that's always, always foremost in the front of my mind and, and something that I uh, I worry about. But when you're working these kinds of cases, you have to push it. You have to push it off to the side because they already know what you're afraid of, and then right. they just feed on that. Right. And, Sean, you've got a, a, a business, I guess, or a ministry called Ghost Be Gone. Um, what exactly is it? Is it, is it a group uh, or is it uh, a service basically to help rid people of hauntings and possessions? Tell us about it. It's just uh, my wife and I, we're the team. We're ghostbegone.biz. Okay. And we do exactly that. We're just, uh, we're there to help any way we can. If it's just to come over and uh, give you some counseling, 
and uh, teach a person how to draw their own line in the sand and make a stand and, you know, fight back against what's, uh, you know, turning their life upside down there in their house, get rid of that extra unwanted guest or all the way to something, you know, uh, farther, you know, much more sinister. We're there for all of that. But I also teach an online course, an introduction to spiritual warfare through uh, another organization that I founded called the Worldwide Society of Exorcists. And um, I'm also a certified spiritual advisor, intuitive coach, and uh, that's under reverendshawn.com. But ghostbegone.biz is, is my wife and I. Okay, and you've um, you've actually handled some exorcisms? I mean, you've actually been involved in that directly? Dozens. Dozens. Okay, so the first time you did an exorcism, tell us about how that process starts. Someone contacts you with the with the uh, belief that they know somebody who is possessed? Is that how it starts? It's kind of a long, it's a much more long and drawn-out process than one would think. We first get reached out to, I send an intake form. The intake form is rather lengthy, and I require everybody in the household as a family unit to sit down and fill out this intake form. They send it back to us. My wife and I will review the intake form. I've already conducted an initial phone interview. My wife will usually conduct a second interview after we've read the intake form. And then her and I will decide how we want to proceed. A lot of people don't realize that, depending on the severity of the haunting, God forbid if it is a demonic infestation or someone's there, extremely oppressed and on the verge of possession, they they truly are the ones that have the power to fight back and push this thing back out of their life and out of their home. So if we can counsel people through how to do that, that's the best. But if ultimately we decide the best course of action is that the two of us go there, we start by just initially doing a walkthrough. We don't do religious provocation because if there is a demonic entity there, it's already so agitated at our presence. There's no reason to make it worse because the people that suffer the most are usually the client if we poke the bear, so to speak, especially if there's children and animals in the home. They're always the ones that get the brunt of the attack. So we just do a walkthrough and see what we see, feel what we feel, experience what we experience, go home, discuss it, and then decide if, if we need to proceed. Now, God forbid it's an exorcism. I wake up every morning and pray that I never have to perform another exorcism again or take authority over another exorcism again, because um, it's very scary. You're talking a matter of life and death, and if uh, you lose that battle, you usually have lost um, something that you can't get back, and that, God forbid, could all be the life of the client that's possessed. So I do have a very close-knit team that I reach out to. Usually it's a couple of prayer warriors that sit in the room, and that their job is just to keep their face down in their Bible and just to keep praying, praying, and praying, no matter what they hear or see or feel, don't stop praying. I usually have a couple of people to help me in case I get hurt. They can step in and take over the take authority over the exorcism themselves. If it's a woman, we usually have a couple of women 
so in case she vomits, defecates, urinates all over herself, or God forbid worse, they can take her to a restroom and clean her up. If it's a man, then they usually have a couple of men come with me uh, to assist for the same exact reason. And um, it's like a play. You know, I usually go by the rite of exorcism, the Catholic rite of exorcism. Everybody's got a copy of that book with them because there's a lot of responses that need to be um, said while I'm doing the appropriate prayers. And uh, we just, uh, sometimes it's relatively quick. I usually do not walk into a home that I know is demonically infested without dropping on my knees at the front door and saying some special prayers of protection. And then my main weapon is humility. So the most humble thing I can think to do is to crawl on my hands and knees over the threshold. Usually, sometimes it sounds like a herd of pigs squealing and running out of the home, and that's all it took. Sometimes I have to go to the next stage, which is lying the whole family up on a couch, and I wash all their feet in holy water, just like Christ did many times to his apostles. That can sometimes send them over the edge, and they're just gone. Now, if I have to go beyond that. It's usually pretty severe, and uh, the exorcism can sometimes last a day, sometimes um, much longer than that. But you come back in trips. You don't move in with the family and stay there for a month. You come back every couple of days and stay however long you need need to stay there, or you can stay there that particular day that you come back, whether it be all day long or all night long, but everybody doesn't. The team needs a break. You can't just move in with the family. After you've... And uh, hopefully, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. Just, you know, long story short, you're hope, hopefully you bring closure to this and you're able to uh, accomplish what you came to accomplish. Um, I belong to an internet, let's, you know, for lack of a better term, a network of exorcists all over the world. And before I go to these locations, I send the word out. Client name, the demon I suspect is um, possessing the person, the exact time and day that I'm going to be there performing the exorcism. And I ask at that exact time and day that everybody who's available to do it drop into deep meditation and prayer for me, my wife, and my team and for the outcome of that conflict to go relatively um, without too much harm and too much um, uh, danger and nobody getting hurt and bringing closure to that and getting the invading unclean spirit to to um, go on its way. So uh, let's back this whole thing up a little bit here because you, you, know, you go through a screening process that you de- described for us. Uh, at what point do you decide this has to be something that's dealt with in an exorcist, exorcism level? What uh, characteristics does the um, individual have to demonstrate for you, or does the home have to demonstrate for you, for you to decide, yeah, this is a, this is a case uh, that requires an exorcism? Well, I was blessed by God to have the discernment where I see demons and hear demons. So before I even get the phone call, my wife and I start experiencing what many people in our our field call uh, recon blasts. I just call them paranormal drive-bys. 
activity spikes here in our home, and I can usually tell something's coming. So then we get the call, and it's just a gut feeling. I can drive to the home at high noon here in Vegas, and there can't be one tree um, around that home. But when I look at it, the home appears to me as though I'm looking at it through sunglasses. And I just I just have a gut feeling that I know at that point. And then I can just feel it when I get up to the door and the client opens the door. I can just feel it. I don't have to set the person down and make sure that they, you know, uh, can describe something to me in the future or tell me something about my past nobody would know or speak to me in a foreign language that they wouldn't know. I don't need to do all of that because it's all just parlor tricks, and it's part of what I what I don't like to do, which is religious provocation. Right. If I already know what I'm up against, it's best just to come in and do what you have to do. Do the demons and the demonic entities, the dark entities, do they attack the weak? Do they attack attack those that are the most vulnerable? Absolutely. Most of my cases are... The children are being attacked in the family. The animals are being attacked. Uh, someone in the family um, either has autism or Down syndrome or they're confined to a wheelchair. It's usually the weakest link in the family uh, that it usually comes under attack. Is there a point? And then flip side of that coin, it's the person in the home that doesn't want to admit to you that they have brought this down on them. 99.9% of the time, and a lot of my clients don't like to hear this, someone in that home has done something. And I don't judge. I usually ask everyone to be willing to confess to me, you know, what's happening there, what's going on, what have you been up to in your life. But someone's done something there to make this entity feel that it's been given permission to come in there and attach to them and attach to the family. And that could be a variety of things, but you need to address that problem first and then work from there. Have you ever met a case, or is there a point at which uh, the possession is too is severe that even an exorcism won't, won't f- solve the problem? So far, I have, not re- I have not run into that personally, thank you, Jesus, but... There have been some cases I've worked where before we had a chance to finish up, the family got so worried about the family member that was going through that that they had them committed to either a psychiatric hospital or some type of hospital where they could be under the care of a physician 24-7 and, um, you know, go that route. Sometimes they get cold feet and they feel that maybe this, you know, um, they may look at me like I'm some kind of witch doctor that has come in there and I'm trying to convert them to Catholicism or Christianity and that this isn't really what's happening and they're not on, totally on board with what I need from them uh, to help me. And that's okay, too. I, I get it. And sometimes they, they go that route, and, that, and that's okay, too. It's sad, but that's okay, too. And hopefully... By the grace of God, they get the help they need going that route. Usually they don't, but I pray that they do. I'm in constant prayer that that client gets the help that they need. Um, And I have to cut a lot of clients loose, too, which is sad, because they may think that they're at rock bottom, and they call you in for help. You get there, and then you start telling them what you need from them to help 
they need to help too. And there's things they need to do to help you help them. And they're just not quite there yet. And if they're not quite there, then um, it's just going to make things worse if I have, if I'm trying to fight this thing by myself, uh, it usually gets a lot worse. So I, I need the help of everybody that's involved. And sometimes they're just not ready. You know, we, we so it's sad. We, we hear in the news, and, and we're going to run out of time here. I'm going to get a few more questions. And we hear in the news uh, stories of exorcisms gone bad. And as you said, you know, uh, harm comes to the, the person who is uh, receiving the exorcism. In some cases, it's death. Uh, what happened in those cases? It's, it's pretty crazy. I usually have somebody there that's filming everything. No, 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 no. I, I, uh, you, you've had cases where somebody's died? No, I personally have not had okay. a case where somebody died, but I suspected things were going to get quite ugly. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it all documented on film, and I wanted witnesses. So I usually have someone that knows how to run a camera and is brave enough and devout enough in their religion that they believe uh, as long as they you know, uh, have gone to church that week, gone to confession, received Holy Communion, and just there to film that they'll be okay to do that. And I have been on cases where, like I said, things have gotten so bad that the clients have decided they just weren't ready to see it through to the end. Uh, There was something about what was happening that scared them so bad that they they thought, you know, we need to reach out for some medical help here and get our our child or our brother or our sister uh, to a medical facility. And perhaps uh, there have been times where maybe that was the best route. Maybe something really uh, terrible and awful was was about to occur. I don't know. And that would be just crushing. Could you imagine? I I hope I never yeah. find myself in that situation. That would be that would be enough to want to uh, never make me want to uh, leave my faith, doubt my faith. But that could be something that would make you want to maybe walk away from this work. Yeah. So I, I hope that never happens. Yeah, that would be the worst case scenario for sure. Well, we've only got about a minute left here, Sean. Um, let people know how they can find out more about your work. I know you have a book as well. Um, tell people where they can get a hold of it. God, Ghosts, and the Paranormal Ministry. You can get autographed copies. <laughs> for those of you that might want one, autographed at the ghostbegone.biz website. You can also purchase the book at Amazon and Kindle. The wonderful thing about the book is part of the proceeds of every sale of every book goes to St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Nevada, especially this time of year. That's a very good thing. And for all my brothers and sisters that have already purchased the book out there listening to the interview, you're part of that. So God bless you for that. Uh, I'm easy to find. You can get a hold of me through um, the website. ReverendSean.com, the Worldwide Society of Exorcists, um, GhostBegone.biz, the website. I have a Facebook page, a couple of Facebook pages. Uh, I'm, I'm very easy to find. But before we go, real quick, if you would like to, because of the guests you had on earlier and the things we talked about, if you want me to finish the show with a really small prayer of protection over you, JV, your listeners in the show, I'd be more than happy to. Sure. Why don't you go ahead and do that for us, Sean? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Under thy protection, we seek refuge. O Holy Mother of God, despise not our prayers in our needs. Save us always from all danger. O glorious and blessed Virgin, amen. 
Holy Mother, Queen of Martyrs, pray for us. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you on the show. We'll have to have you back. We have a little more time. God bless you, JV. I'll be looking forward to it. Thank you to Reverend Sean Whittington and also to Pam Grossman, both of our guests for the evening. Uh, Both of them could have been on for an entire show, so we'll look forward to having them back. Don't forget, tomorrow night is a best of program. Monday night, Lisa Morton, author and screenwriter, will be with us to talk about the history of ghosts from ancient Samaria through today and examine related entities such as poltergeist, wraiths, and revenants. Kind of pick up the conversation that we just finished with Reverend Sean Whittington. Anyway, be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel. Go to YouTube and search for J.V. Johnson. Very easy to find. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. There's no obligation. None of that stuff is just uh, makes you part of our YouTube community, which we would love for you to be part of. There are uh, 400 or so back episodes there. There are also bonus content, and we stream live every night the show is on. So um, do that. YouTube, look for J.V. Johnson. Thanks for being here. We'll see you all next time. It's Beyond Reality Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is hosted by Jason Hawes and J.V. Johnson and produced by Alexandria Johnson and Slick Eddie Edwards for Entercom Radio. Beyond Reality Radio is distributed by Westwood One Radio Networks. Stop by our Facebook page and say hello. Follow the hosts on Facebook as well. For Jason Hawes, follow at JasonHawes.taps. For J.V. Johnson, follow at J.V.J. Paranormal. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Radio or you have a suggestion for a guest, contact Slick Eddie Edwards at SlickEddieEdwards at gmail.com. Be sure to visit our chat room as well at beyondrealityradio.com. Thanks for listening.